Thank you. Merci. Attorney General of Canada on behalf of the Republic of India versus Surjit Singh Badesha et al. Uh, please note that Justice Brown is attending this hearing remotely via live feed and any questions he may have will be put to the parties in writing after the hearing. Janet Henchy and Deba B. Mazub for the appellant. Michael Klein, QC, and Michael Sopkin for the respondent, Surjit Singh Badesha. David E. Crossan, QC, Elizabeth France, and Miriam Isman for the respondent, Malkit Kaur Sidhu. John Norris and Cheryl Milne for the intervener, David Osper, Center for Constitutional Rights. Ranjan K. Agarwal and Preet Bell for the intervener South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario. Adriel Weaver and Lewis Sentry for the interveners Canadian Lawyers for International Human Rights et al. Ms. Henchy. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I will be um, referring to in my arguments the condensed book, the Attorney General's condensed book, as well as our factum and possibly volumes one and five of the appeal record. Uh, whether the minister's decision was reasonable insofar as he considered that it would be safe to extradite the respondents to India to be prosecuted and if convicted, incarcerated for the murder of their niece and daughter, Jazzy Sidhu, is essentially the issue before the court today. The Attorney General's position in a nutshell is that when persons who are sought for extradition by a treaty partner argue that it is not safe to extradite them to that treaty partner, they need to present credible evidence that would rebut what is effectively a presumption that it is safe to surrender to a treaty partner. An important part of that evidence is likely to be general country conditions reports from well-respected sources, um, such as the U.S. State Department and Amnesty International. But that's not enough. The person needs to be able to link any problems that they are asserting or are described in the country reports to their circumstances. That is what is known as personalized risk. Most country reports highlight particular categories of people that are at heightened risk or situations that are high risk. If there is evidence that the person sought falls into one of these categories, they may have established a personalized risk. In extreme situations, the personal and the general are the same thing. That is to say, the general risk is so all-encompassing that all persons are subject to risk. That is what the respondents say is the case here. The Attorney General of Canada strongly argues that the, re the record, including the general country reports, does not support such a finding. And as a result, the minister's decision to surrender was not unreasonable in the absence of any evidence of personalized risk. You'll be invited by everyone that follows me this morning, and I see there's many of them, um, to say that this case is all about assurances against torture. I emphasize the minister did not seek or obtain an assurance against torture. The assurances that he did seek and obtain were just one part of the factual matrix that he considered before concluding that surrender would not be contrary to Section 7 of the Charter. By way of background, India is seeking the respondent's extradition to face prosecution for the honor killing of their niece and daughter, Jazzy Sidhu, or Jazzy. Jazzy married a boy that her family did not approve of because he was a rickshaw driver. Her family harassed and assaulted her in order to get her to renounce her marriage. She refused to do so. On June 8, 2000, she and her young husband, Me Too, were set upon by a gang of men 
on a roadside in India. <clears throat> Mita was attacked and wounded but recovered. Jazzy's throat was slit and she died. Thirteen people, including the respondents, were charged in India with the conspiracy to murder and the ultimate murder of Jazzy. The other 11 persons have already been tried in India. Seven were convicted after trial and four were acquitted. A further four were acquitted on appeal and three are currently serving life sentences in India. The respondents are alleged to have orchestrated the murder by paying the assailants in India 500,000 rupees to kill Jazzy Sidhu. The record of the case alleges that the respondents who grew up in India actively chose India as the venue for this well-planned premeditated murder. They could have killed the victim in Canada, but they chose India. In Badesha's own words to Me Too in a phone call after Jazzy's murder, it's very easy to have people killed in India. The respondents were committed for extradition, and although they originally appealed the decision, they subsequently abandoned that appeal. This means they do not dispute that there is sufficient evidence to justify their extradition to face trial in relation to the murder of Jazzy Sidhu. The respondents made submissions to the minister that focused primarily on the need for a death penalty assurance and their concerns about whether such an assurance, if given, would be honoured. They also raised concerns about obtaining proper health care and custody in relation to their pre-existing health problems. In their submissions, they made brief reference to concerns about the Indian judicial and custodial systems. The minister ordered their surrender, made it conditional on the receipt from India of four assurances, all of which were provided. One of the four assurances was that they would be provided with medical care and medication and that their safety and custody would be assured. The majority of the British Columbia Court of Appeals set aside the minister's surrender order, returned it to the minister to reconsider, having found that the health and safety assurance was insufficient to address uh, what the court concluded to be the appalling human rights record placed before the minister. Uh, you, you state the safety and health was assured, but was it not more accurately that India would take reasonable steps to assure it, and isn't that where a lot of the argument situates itself? Yes, I think in fact that's the case, that that's the argument that the assurance is insufficient, but my argument will be that there are ample reasons to think this assurance does have some value, but on its own, it shouldn't be assessed on its own, it should be assessed in the context of all the circumstances. Again, I'm that what's really quite pivotal here is that uh, generic evidence of human rights conditions is insufficient to establish a substantial risk of mistreatment. Are, do you plan to just leave it at that or are you going to say more about it because you've gotten into the particulars of the case rather quickly? Uh, when I read your factum and I look at page 18 beginning at paragraph 40, it seemed to me this is quite pivotal. And, and I, I don't mean to interrupt the flow of your argument, but to me it is of considerable interest, whether you wish to address it now or wish to address it later. Um, Thank you, um, Mr. Justice Rowe. I do intend to address that very early on, and I agree it's very pivotal to the, the outcome of this case. Um, so I, uh, I want to just simply start by saying that the British Columbia Court of Appeal erred by concluding that the seeking of assurances was conclusive proof of risk, and by failing to review the totality of the circumstances in determining whether the Minister's decision to surrender was reasonable. I intend to go through those circumstances with the Court. Right. Uh, I have a question about the record, if, if, you, if I may. Uh, was there anything in the record suggesting that assurances given uh, by India have not been effective? No, there's no evidence that India has failed to comply with assurances. Oh my Is there evidence that India has given assurances in the past? Yes. I have one more question following up on that. Is there any evidence that any of the other 11 co-accused 
um, have alleged that they have been mistreated, uh, tortured, whatever, during the times of their arrest in custody or the ones that have actually been convicted and are in custody? Is there any evidence? No, there's no evidence that's been put forward of any mistreatment of the co-accused either in the course of their trial or since they've been in custody. Thank you. And that would be, in my argument, one of the really important factors in the reasonableness of the Minister's decision. So the majority of the British Columbia Court of Appeal should have asked itself whether the Minister considered all the relevant circumstances, including <coughs> the circumstances of the co-accused. Instead, the Court started from the conclusion that the Minister had accepted that the respondents were at risk, not just at risk of general problems, but at risk of torture, and based on that conclusion, asked only whether it was reasonable to conclude that the assurances on their own were sufficient to mitigate a risk of torture that I would argue had never been found by the Minister. It was this failure to consider all the circumstances combined with the misapprehension of the facts, including the country reports, that led to the majority into error. So I'm going to quickly uh, discuss the standard of review, although it's not really contentious in this case, and then I'm going to get to what Mr. Justice Rowe asked me to do, which is to go to the actual circumstances to show um, what actually happened in this case and what the record actually shows. So the standard of review in extradition cases um, is laid out by this court in a case called Lake. It's at the condensed book, tab one. We don't need to go there, but it's there if you wanted to look at it. And paragraph 34 says, the issue in the case at bar concerns the standard to be applied in reviewing the minister's assessment <coughs> of a fugitive's charter rights. Reasonableness is the appropriate standard of review for the minister's decision, regardless of whether the fugitive argues that extradition would infringe his or her rights under the Charter. The minister has superior expertise, and Lake also says that because of that superior expertise, his decision or her decision attracts a high degree of deference and could entail more than one possible conclusion. Excuse me. <coughs> now, in balancing all the relevant, relevant considerations, the minister is determining whether surrender would violate Section 7 or be unjust or oppressive. Um, the test for a violation of Section 7 has consistently been found to be shock the conscience, whether or not the surrender would shock the conscience, and that is also uh, quoted in Lake. And unjust or oppressive references Section 44.1a of the Extradition Act. Now, the reason I'm spending any time at all on the standard of review, which, as I pointed out, is really not in contention, is because the Court of Appeal gets it wrong. They look like they got it right, but they got it wrong. So the Court of Appeal refers to Lake, quite appropriately, but then it goes on to assess whether or not the assurances were reasonable, not whether or not the minister's decision was reasonable. So you can see this through the headings that are within the decision of the majority. First heading, was the death penalty assurance reasonably accepted? Second heading, was the assurance regarding corruption reasonably accepted? Third heading, were the assurances regarding violence, torture, and neglect, which there was no such assurance, reasonably accepted? And then, in contrast, if you look at the dissenting reasons of Justice Gopal in this case, he heads up his, his description as reasonableness of the minister's decision quite properly, I would say. So I'd like to move for the next five or ten minutes to talk about the actual circumstances of the case. Um, look at what the respondent said to the minister and how he responded in order to better understand how the legal framework would sit on top of these circumstances. So Mr. Badesha, the respondent Badesha, provided 18 pages of submissions to the minister on a number of items, <coughs> primarily the death penalty. He argued that a death penalty assurance of obtained could not be relied on. In a handful of paragraphs amounting to less than one page of his 18 pages of submissions, he points to a couple of references in the U.S. country report on India. Um, and I have appended in the condensed book at tab two um, excerpts from the, from the uh, submissions of, of counsel. So 
So that's at tab two. And he raises on pages 40 to 41 concerns about corruption. He raises risk of wrongful conviction. He raises concern about whether he can get a fair trial. And pages 46 to 48, which perhaps are the most relevant, he talks about his personal circumstances and tells the minister that he has some health issues uh, related to serious bladder issues and um, arthritis. And he points out a provision, which perhaps is the one provision that I would say is actually relevant to the circumstances of this case, and that's the uh, prison conditions um, having difficulties, in other words, not meeting international standards, and he cites from that uh, provision of the U.S. country report. So we'll talk about that more in the argument. But the minister responds to all of this, and I've got excerpts of his decision on tab three, and in particular I want to start at page 75 of tab three of the condensed book because the minister starts by saying this on the last, last full paragraph, although I recognize that corruption has been found to exist in India, including in the judicial system, there is nothing before me to suggest that any corruption, intimidation or torture was involved in India's investigation of Mr. Badesha or the 12 co-accused persons in this matter. Similarly, there is nothing before me to suggest that the trial court in India, which has already prosecuted 11 co-accused persons, acted in any improper or corrupt manner. In this regard, I note that you have not alleged any specific coercion or corruption in the Indian investigation of Mr. Badesha or in the context of the trial of 11 of the co-accused persons in this case. So then the minister goes on to uh, consider what, what safeguards exist in India to ensure a, sa a fair trial and, and uh, he points at, on page 76 to article 21 of the Indian constitution which sounds very similar to our, uh, section 7 of our charter and it reads no person shall be deprived of his life or personal liberty except, in a, except according to a procedure established by law. He notes that, the, uh, that India is a member of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and he outlines a whole series of protections available to persons, in, uh, persons in, uh, being prosecuted in India under the Constitution and the Code of Criminal Procedure, many of them very similar to what we'd expect here, right to call defense, right to counsel, right to legal aid, right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, right to appeal. But more importantly, at paragraph, on page 77, the, at the middle of the page, underneath the bullets, he says, therefore, I am satisfied that while there are ongoing concerns with respect to corruption and human rights violations in India, there is no compelling information before me to suggest that Mr. Padesha would be subjected to such abuses. Indeed, as I noted previously, there is an absence of any information before me to suggest that coercion, torture, or corruption were involved in the investigation that gives rise to this extradition request. Nevertheless, he points out that Mr. Badesha would have access to consular services and that India is, part of the Vienna, is party to the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. And although he doesn't conclude that India would not uh, abide by its obligations under that um, instrument, he nevertheless seeks an assurance uh, to indicate to India that it's important that Mr. Badesha be given full, full recourse to consular services. And then he addresses personal circumstances. Excuse me just for a moment. This You've been reading from his conclusions relating to right over here. Um, fair trial concerns. The issue, as I understand it, is about prison conditions in India, which is a separate section, which is on you know, page 78, 79, where he doesn't say, I've concluded there's no problem. He says, um, I've concluded that I should get assurances as a result of the uh, evidence that you've presented. Are you, I, I understand there's a difference of opinion as to whether or not 
he actually made a finding, but um, what you were reading was a finding for fair trial concerns. It's not the finding for prison uh, conditions, which I think is quite different. So which if is, you can address that. Which is what I'm going to address right now. So with respect to personal circumstances, the minister notes the personal circumstances that Mr. Badesha has highlighted, his, his medical problems, and he goes to the effort of contacting India to find out from them what would be available to assist him with his medical conditions, not generally in India at large, but where he's going to be in India, which is Punjab. So uh, he gets information back through the Punjab jail manual and the Ministry of External Affairs in India about what is available in India and how they would be able to ensure that Mr. Badesha's health is properly cared for. And then he doesn't leave it at that. He goes to the, the Canadian High Commission in India and asks them to confirm that in fact that is the case, that these medical facilities are available and that persons in custody in Punjab have access to them. And after that, um, he concludes that um, Mr. Badesha is wanted for serious, um, serious uh, offences and that he uh, should not be allowed to uh, avoid prosecution because of his health problems it's in light of all of the circumstances, including the fact that he's going to go to the effort of getting an assurance to say, not only do these, not only do these facilities exist, but you'll have access to them. Um, in all those circumstances, the Minister has concluded that uh, it would be safe to surrender Mr. Badesha to India. I would submit that this is a far cry from a situation where there's clear evidence that a person is at real risk of torture and the Minister seeks an assurance from the country to say they won't torture him. In fact, on two occasions he says he's satisfied that he will not be tortured. So what he's doing is he's addressing the health circumstances in the specific. He's going to the location where the person is going to be housed and he's finding out what's available to them in that circumstance. And I'll, I'll come in more detail to the actual country reports and why I think they don't stand for what my friends would like you to think they stand for. But in all the circumstances, the minister has done everything that he could do and this assurance is not an, is not an empty assurance because you take it in the context of all the other information, including the fact that the assurance itself points to all the legal requirements for uh, India to provide medical uh, care to inmates. What extent is there an evidentiary requirement where you have the kinds of comments that the minister points to in page 78 of his report about the human rights report from the Department of State? Um, to get more than generic assurances about the realistic prospect of genuine health care. Where you have prison conditions generally, the likelihood of someone in those circumstances actually being able to get the kind of help they need when there is overcrowding, when there's uh, maltreatment. So it's really a question of what kind of factual foundation could the minister have sought to assure himself that in fact, notwithstanding these concerns, circumstances like um, overcrowded, sanitation, potable water, understaffed, physical mistreatment, mm -hmm. is, is it realistic to ask for assurances that notwithstanding these general circumstances, this particular individual will somehow be in a class by, well, both of them will be in, in the class by themselves and removed from those circumstances in prison? I guess I'm trying to figure out what reasonable assurances mean in the face of 
logistic limitations in the prison system, even in the Punjab? Right. Well, I would argue two things. Reasonable assurances mean what's reasonable in the circumstances. So again, you have to look to the circumstances. The information that's been provided by the respondents is extremely general, and the law, which I'll come to shortly, says that you need to be specific to show what the actual risk is to you, and that there's all sorts of uh, factors that can be taken into account to determine whether the per particular people and the particular circumstances are at risk. The minister sought admittedly general assurances, but not completely general, because he went to the actual location where they're going to be housed and said, what's the circumstance there? The respondents haven't given me anything about the circumstances in Punjab, so I'm going to ask about it and find out what they are. And he did find out, and he found out there were facilities available to them. The, 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 um, the respondents could have provided information to the contrary based on the, the uh, accused persons who are serving, uh, serving their life sentences in Punjab right now, but they've provided nothing. So there's nothing to suggest that any of these people are facing difficulties. And the general comments, and I'll specifically go to the report shortly, but the general comments actually are followed by references to specific areas where there are problems, and those areas don't include Punjab. So I would oh, say, and I, I said I had two points. So the second point is just quickly, the question is not what are all the things the minister could have done, but what did the minister do and was it reasonable? The question I wanted to know is what do, what do reasonable assurances mean in the context of realistic, practical barriers <coughs> to the implementation of those reasonable assurances? Like, I don't know. I would say that's not what's happening here. So I, I, I understand where you're headed with this. If there was a scenario where there's really no way you could believe, you see that there's a, clear, there's a clear risk and there's no way you can believe in the assurance, well, then you've got a problem. We've got two things that take us away from that scenario here. One, there is no evidence of a real risk. And two, the minister has sought general assurances which are still specific to the region where they're going to go to in order to be satisfied that they will be treated properly. And that, in my submission, is reasonable in the circumstances. So reasonable assurances depend on the circumstances. Well, can I ask, you said there's no evidence of a real risk. So I want to come back to what kind of evidence uh, should be required. There is evidence about overcrowding, potable water, mistreatment, and so on. There is some evidence. So the question is, what kind of evidence are you suggesting um, someone has to bring to the minister? You said go and find somebody who's in prison, who's being mistreated. I, just how practical, how, how, I mean, how fair is that? How likely is it that they can obtain that kind of evidence? So I'm not suggesting they should go and find somebody in prison. I'm saying in these particular circumstances, they know somebody in prison for the very charges that they are being sought for. So they have that information that they could have come forward with. That's only one of possible options. But, and, I, and I'm going to come to the framework for assessing risk, and maybe now is as good a time as any to get there. Um, that the framework for assessing risk, all of the case law, including the international case law, says there has to be some kind of personal connection between the person who's alleging the risk and the general information about risk. And <clears throat> the onus is on the person who is asserting the risk to demonstrate substantial risk of mistreatment. And where that person has demonstrated it, the minister would then have a, the, ob the obligation to base uh, his decision on all the information available, including assurances if he were to seek them, about whether or not um, Section 7 has been would be violated by surrender. So if I can take you to the issue of personalized risk, 
because no matter what the, balance, what, what the standard is for the person to establish risk, in other words, whether they have to establish it on a balance of probabilities or whether they have to establish it on substantial grounds, the cases, Canadian cases say balance of probabilities, international law, the European Court of Human Rights says they have to establish sufficient, uh, they have to establish risk on substantial grounds. But whatever that is, whatever risk, whatever um, burden is on them, all the cases, literally all the cases say that whether, whatever the risk, the person has a burden on them and they have to connect that risk to themselves. There has to be a personalized risk. It's not some out there argument, all the cases say it. So. Um, it doesn't mean the risk is only associated to that one person. It doesn't mean they have to go and get someone to say, you're going to be at risk, and that's what personalized risk is. That's not personalized risk. It can be risk associated with the type of offense that they're going to be prosecuted with, the region that they're going to be sent to, their particular ethnic, political, or religious group that they belong to, or it could be because of more specific information, as I suggested in this case, by information about what's happened to their co-accused who have already been prosecuted in India on those very charges. Um, We've included uh, 22 different decisions from the European Court of Human Rights that drive home this point that they consistently apply the same formula in reviewing risk prior to affirming or overturning a decision to deport or to extradite. So one example of that is in our, case, our condensed book at tab 7, a case which I'm mispronouncing, I'm sure, called Jiriyev versus Russia. And that was an extradition re uh, request from Tajikistan to Russia. And there was arguments made about the poor uh, treatment of detainees generally in Tajikistan, but the court went on and insisted upon looking at the personal circumstances of Mr. Juryev and said, at pa paragraph 126 of that decision, the mere reference to a general problem concerning observance of human rights in a particular country cannot alone serve as a basis for refusal of extradition, save in the most extreme circumstances. The applicant's specific allegations in a particular case require corroboration by other evidence with reference to the individual circumstances substantiating his fears of ill treatment. In the court's view, the need for such evidence is all the greater in a case such as that one, given that the charges pending against the applicant in Tajikistan appeared to be of a common criminal nature. The court, after considering all the circumstances, discovered that he was uh, the principal figure in a criminal case that had already resulted in the conviction of more than 30 individuals many of whom who had claimed in one form or another that they had been tortured to falsely incriminate the applicant and the court found personalized risk in that case. So it's not an impossible standard to meet and of the many cases that we've provided to you, there are at least, and I'm sure I've missed some of them, seven of them where the court, eight if you count this one I just talked about, where the court found personalized risk for various reasons. Sometimes it's because of the type of offense. Sometimes it's because the person belongs to a particular group that is um, subject to uh, persecution. Well, if I hear you correctly, your point as I understand it is this, <clears throat> that in assessing whether or not assurances that have been given or requested and given are reasonable in a particular case. You just don't look at the assurances. You look at context. And context is critical, you say, as I understand it, in all of these matters. For example, look at the nature of the crime here. It's not a terrorism. It's not insurrection. It's, uh, it's allegedly an honor killing. Uh, look at the people that are involved. They're not part of a group that would be historically uh, tortured or maltreated or whatever. Look at Canada's relationship with India. Look at 
the context in, an, in the context of an extradition treaty. Look at the international uh, outcries and uh, sort of uh, problems that might well exist, not just with Canada, but with all India's extradition partners. So I'm not going to go on, but basically when you look at assurances, you can't just divorce them from context. Is that your position? I certainly couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's exactly my position. So context is everything. It's not enough to look at a report that says there's some problems because you need the context in which the person is going to be, the person is going to be facing when they reach that country. And many of the, the uh, points that have been mentioned by Justice Moldaver are among the cont contextual factors that the minister took into account. And I'll, I'll list those in more detail. But first I want to talk about a case called Shahal, which is referred to by my friends in their materials. Um, it's not in my condensed book, but it's, it's uh, as I said, mentioned by my friends in their materials. And this is a case where the United Kingdom was seeking to deport someone to India. It's all the way back to 1996. My friends see this as an important case for them, and I would argue it's a very important case for the Attorney General of Canada. Because the European Court of Human Rights applied the same test that I told you is the test to be applied. First, you can look at general circumstances, but then you have to put them into context with the personal circumstances of the individual in question and determine whether there is a real risk. And only then would you consider whether, uh, whether the assurances, if provided, um, have any effect on um, the circumstances. So in Chahal, this person... Sorry, what, what tab is this? I missed it. I apologize. I'm sorry about that because it's not in my materials and I didn't, it, although my friends referred to it, I didn't have a case book from them that, uh, that included it. Um, it might be in one of their condensed books. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you with that. I'll find you a tab. Um, C -H we just want to identify it. We've looked at the cases. It's C-H-A-H-A-L. Yes, okay. I have you now. Okay. okay. European Court of Human Rights. So, in that case, the European Court found that Mr. Chahal was a Sikh at a time when there was an active conflict in Punjab, and this is important, Punjab, whereby Sikhs were attempting to separate from India. And the European Court found that there was a risk by security forces in the conflict zone if he was deported, and there was also a, a high risk with respect to Punjab police that were apparently running rampant in this time period. So, first of all, it's important because they applied the test even back in 1996. Although they found you couldn't deport to India in that instance, it was based on personalized risk, not general risk. But then, even more importantly from my perspective, is that the respondents rely on this to say, back to 1996, India was terrible. It doesn't stand for that because it's talking about a specific circumstance in Punjab and, if, and, and the case refers to the U.S. country report um, which describes those circumstances in some detail. It's the U.S. country report that refers to problems in Punjab, problems with Punjab police. But if you compare it to the U.S. country report from 2013, which is the country report that we're relying on for the context now, there's not any reference to Punjab. So 68 pages of that U.S. country report, which is a very reliable source for country conditions, not one reference to Punjab. Contrast it with the Chahal case back in 1996, 20 years ago. It was filled with references to Punjab, so circumstances have changed. And if there was a problem, it would show up in the country report like it did in 1996. So in the, in the 2013 report, there's three references to Punjab. Or four, I should say. Three of them are on one page, page 60 of the U.S. country report, um, which talks about the fact that there's honor killings in Punjab. And page 32 talks about special search warrant powers that Punjab and some other regions have 
no specific reference to, to conditions in prisons, no specific reference to um, issues with corruption, no specific reference to Punjab police or circumstances of particular conflict in Punjab. So Chahal, for me, stands for the fact that everything has changed in India and context is everything. So why not rely on general information? I think that's really one of the questions that you've been asking me. And I would say because general information about challenges in judicial and custodial settings can be found in relation to almost all countries. And insisting that extradition can only take place with countries that face no challenges will bring the entire system of extradition to a halt. So the issues need to be real and they need to be specific to the person's thoughts, circumstances. And I've put in the condensed book the case of Diab. It's at tab 8. Um, that's an, a decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal, and it's a slightly different context, um, but it's an extradition case. And in that case, there was a concern that the evidence being relied upon by the requesting state was derived from torture, and were that the case, that would be problematic for extradition. So the court had to determine what is the basis for determining if evidence derived from torture, um, what, what burden is on the person to establish that evidence was derived by torture or was probably derived by torture or might have been derived by torture? And at paragraph 242, the court says, again, it's a different test, but expecting a person facing surrender to be able to show a direct nexus between the evidence and the use of torture would be unrealistic. But if we go on, at the same time, something more than mere generalized assertions of human rights violations by agents of the requesting state by agents of the state providing the evidence to the requesting state will usually be required were it not so, the mere involvement of a state with a questionable human rights record would be enough to trigger the minister's obligation to satisfy himself or herself, a standard that would not give sufficient weight to Canada's international comedy and treaty obligations. Then I'd like to take you to the next tab, which is tab 9, and that is the case of Bacon. Bacon is not an extradition case, it's not even a criminal case, it's to do with suing the Surrey Pretrial Centre. And I give it to you for a quote which is found, it's paragraph 342, although uh, there's no number, but the, it's black lined on the document. And Justice Rosenberg is quoted in an article about the administration of justice in Canada and he says, the courts have repeatedly drawn attention to the state of our holding jails. Prisoners awaiting trial, people who enjoy the presumption of innocence and the right to fundamental justice are often housed in overcrowded medieval conditions with little access to exercise or programming. They are subjected to treatment that some would argue is inhumane and degrading. So I don't say that to say Canada and India are the same or that there's no problem with difficulties in prison conditions. I raise this to point out that all countries have problems and if we decide that no one can, it undermines the entire concept of extradition and sending people to the country where they have allegedly committed crime, if we refuse to surrender based on imperfections in our treaty partners, even sometimes large imperfections without a more specific connection to the person's sought situation. If we do that, we fail to recognize the importance of extradition to the international community as a mechanism for avoiding impunity. So in this particular case, I would point out that the European Court of Human Rights has talked about what does it take to just to say the general conditions are enough. We know they, they apply the test that you need, you need to have um, personalized risk, but when are general conditions enough? And the court says, and I'm sorry this is not in my condensed book, but it's in our book of authorities at tab 5 in Bakoyev versus Russia, 
The court considered the applicant's allegations that any criminal suspect in Uzbekistan ran a risk of ill treatment to be too general and stated that there was no indication that the human rights situation in the requesting country was serious enough to call for a total ban on extradition. So I point this out because that's what the European Court of right, Human Rights says effectively you're doing if you're just, if you're just applying um, uh, general circumstances and not looking to the specific. You're concluding that no one could receive a fair trial in, or could be treated appropriately in the foreign state. So um, also uh, on that point, at the condensed book tab 10, I refer to the case of Capri, which is a decision from Scotland. And they're also addressing this issue, when are general circumstances going to be sufficient to justify um, a finding of risk? And at paragraph 123, they say, when is it the most extreme category where general country conditions would be sufficient to deny extradition and result in a general ban on extradition to that country? If it is possible that a particular person will receive a fair trial in a country, the general situation cannot fall into the most extreme category since it would have been demonstrated that the extradition of a particular person would not result in a violation. So looking at India, I would say India is not that country where general circumstances are so pervasive, so all-encompassing that no human being could have a fair trial or be treated appropriately in custody. And I say that for a number of reasons. First, we have a treaty with India, as um, Justice Muldaver has mentioned. And at tab um, 11 of the condensed book, I've given a, an excerpt from the decision of this court in MM from 2015. And there, Justice Cromwell says this at paragraph 120. The minister's assessment must also account for the fact that the very existence of an extradition arrangement with a foreign country entails a determination that the general system for the administration of justice in the foreign country sufficiently corresponds to our concepts of justice to warrant entering into the treaty in the first place. And specifically with respect to India, I've included the case of Shankaran from the High Court of Justice of the United Kingdom, and that's at the following tab, 12. In paragraph 66, the court says this about India, and they're assessing whether or not to accept assurances. They're not torture assurances, but assurances um, from India in an extradition context. And they say, it is true that India is not party to the European Court of Human Rights or other international treaties that accord specific human rights to those within its jurisdiction. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it is a democracy governed by the rule of law with a developed and effective system of law. It has a constitution requiring respect for fundamental rights, including the protection of life, liberty, and access to a court. There have been long and extensive bilateral relations between the governments of the UK and India. India is a leading member of the Commonwealth. And then finally, the facts do not support a finding that there are uh, no people that can have, a fair, um, have fair treatment in India. So in that respect, I tell you that there are two reports that my friends have relied upon and that they provided to the minister for his consideration um, when he was making his surrender decision. And one I've talked about already is the U.S. country report on India. And the U.S. country report is a well-respected report that um, has been relied on in uh, many contexts. Uh, and I would say that we can turn to that and... Um, and find important information that will be of assistance for the minister. They also relied upon something called the Asian Country Report, uh, the Asian Center for, the Asian Report on Torture, sorry, um, which has been created by a lesser known entity. It doesn't have the same gravitas as the uh, UN country, US Country Report. And I would also point out that when you have a look at it, you'll see that it, it uh, 
has a lot of conclusions without sourcing. It has a lot of speculation, a lot of opinion, and I would argue it really is not as reliable a source as the, um, the U.S. Country Report is. So what does the executive summary of the U.S. Country Report say to us when we're talking about whether the general circumstances in India are so appalling that nobody could possibly be treated pr appropriately if surrendered there? It tells us that, and this is at tab 13, an excerpt from that report, um, each of 28 states is responsible for its own system of law and order. So as I pointed out, there's no information to suggest that Punjab, one of the 28 states, is one of the problematic um, uh, parts of India. So each of 28 states has its own law and order. Most significant human rights violations, this is the second full paragraph on page 17 at tab 13, most significant human rights violations occurred against persons in police custody and at the hands of the security forces. So the respondents will be in something called judicial custody, which is what happens after you've been charged with offenses. So police custody is when you're picked up off the street and taken to the police station, and security forces are dealing with primarily conflict zones. So there's significant problem with both police custody and security forces, and I would tell you there's a lot of detail about both of those things. Um, you see on page 18, serious problems with torture and killings at the hands of insurgents and security forces in conflict zones. Then I take you, flip to page 25, which is outside of the executive summary, but I take you there because it talks about prison and detention center conditions. And I would note that it says that there's a prison population of 385,135 um, inmates in over 1,394 jails. And when we look at this, the numbers that are being suggested for problems with torture or with death in custody, it comes out in my mathematical analysis to less than 0.1% of the prison population. So it cannot be the case that the entire prison system, the entire country of India cannot be trusted with respect to um, prosecuting and housing uh, in, or imprisoning somebody who's been convicted. And I should also point out um, that although there's this reference, which uh, it is significant that prison conditions are overcrowded, food and medical care and sanitation remain inadequate, there is a paragraph that follows that that lists the particular regions that have significant problems and Punjab is not listed among them. And I should also point out that when we look at that wording, it's not that dissimilar from the wording of Justice Rosenberg in the decision in Bacon talking about Canadian conditions. So sometimes the wording is relevant, but it's not all encompassing. It doesn't tell you the whole picture. Um, and in that respect, I'd refer you to the case of Lynn. Which is I, would, I would suggest to you that what Justice Rosenberg was saying was that prison conditions in Canada are, are very sparse, to use a neutral word, compared to the general standard of citizens of Canada. And uh, if things are bad in Indian jails, they will be bad by reference to the general standard of people in India. So being poorly off in a Canadian prison I don't think it's quite the same as being poorly off in an Indian prison, simply because it's relative to the general standard of living in the country. Well, that may be, but the, the report from the U.S. country, uh, State Department country report is, of course, assessing the circumstances in India, not comparing them to Canada or another country. And I take your point, and I'm not suggesting that Canadian prisons are the same as Indian prisons. That was never my point in including that um, reference. 
So I, I would refer you, though, to the case of Gwyn, which is a, court, uh, which is a British Columbia Court of Appeal decision in an extradition context, and that is at tab 14 of the condensed book. And Gwyn um, was sought for extradition in Alabama. He had escaped custody there, so he was uniquely placed to describe what the circumstances were in the jails because he'd already been in them. And there's compelling evidence that the prison conditions in Alabama were, in the words of the majority in this case, appalling, and they included serious overcrowding, lack of proper sanitation, inadequate medical care. And um, at paragraph 41, the court says, in the case at bar, we are invited to examine and condemn the criminal justice system of Alabama. We are invited to conclude it is not inhumane, careless of human life and dignity, but also incapable of change. I think that with the greatest respect, that is not an invitation we should accept. And then I'd move on to paragraph 53, which is two pages in, where the court concludes, I conclude the conditions described by Mr. Gwynn are subjectively shocking. It would appear that in many respects his constitutionally protected rights in the United States were violated. It further appears from the record before us that safeguards of those rights are in place and in some measures are working if fitfully. So safeguards were found by that court in circumstances where there were definitely difficulties, um, without doubt, in Alabama. Safeguards were found to be relevant, and I should point out, taking you back to tab 13, which is the excerpt from the U.S. Um, State Department country report, that safeguards exist in India as well. So at pages 26 and 27, the um, the report talks about independent monitoring. The Ministry of Home Affairs acknowledges that the National Human Rights Council visits jails and other institutions where people are detained in order to observe and report on living conditions and in inmates. At page 32, there's a reference to the fact that individuals or NGOs on behalf of individuals may file public interest litigation petitions in any high court or directly in the Supreme Court to seek judicial redress of public injury. These injuries could result from a breach of public duty by a government agent or a violation of a provision of the Constitution. NGOs credited public interest litigation petitions with making government officials accountable to civil society organization in cases involving allegations of corruption and partiality. And then uh, lastly, I would uh, bring to your attention pages 53 and following, which talk about governmental attitude regarding international non-governmental um, or NGOs, basically, a wide variety of domestic and international human rights groups operated without government restriction, investigating and publishing their findings on human rights cases. Um, in a few cases, they faced restrictions. Government officials were somewhat cooperative and responsive to their views. The co country hosted more than three million NGOs that advocated for social justice, sustainable development. So like the circumstances in Gwyn, where the court took some comfort from the fact that there were safeguards in place, they may not always be working, they may not be working perfectly, but there are efforts in place to ensure that if something goes wrong, there's somewhere to turn, there's something that can be done about it. So as I said early on, the problem with the decision of the Court of Appeal was first that they started from the point of view that assurances were evidence of significant risk, real risk, and therefore you don't need to look at the great, greater context, you just have to look at the assurance and ask yourself, is this assurance enough on its own to deal with this real risk? And so I would like to point out that the case law is consistently not taking the position that assurances are proof of risk. So. Um, I mentioned Suresh, which is in the condensed book. I won't take you there, but it's at tab 15. And Suresh from this court says that um, assurances are just one of the many factors to be considered in assessing risk. That's in the deportation context. 
And then there's the case of Hurley, which is at tab 16 of our materials. And in Hurley, again an extradition case, Hurley was being sent to Mexico. He was concerned that he would be discriminated against because of his sexual orientation. The minister concluded that he was satisfied that Mr. Hurley's surrender would not be unjust or oppressive, but he sought assurances anyway. And there was an argument that's not relevant in this case that the minister didn't have a right to seek assurances. But the court at um, paragraph 31 in tab 16 says, in the circumstances of this matter, it was entirely reasonable for the minister to seek assurances, whether necessary or not in response to the concerns expressed with respect to the safety and well-being of the appellant. It is only reasonable to believe that these conditions will be taken very seriously by Mexico and that Mexico will also want to maintain the integrity of the treaty and a positive <coughs> political relationship with Canada. And at paragraph 25, there's an insight into the minister's thoughts on the issue because he's quoted as saying, I want the surrender order to contain certain conditions that will express that Canada attaches great importance to Mr. Hurley's safety and the treatment he will receive in detention. And then I refer you back to the Juryev case, which was at tab 7, European Court of Human Rights case, where assurances already existed in that case, but the court didn't go to the assurances and say, are they good enough? They went immediately to assessment of the broader circumstances to determine whether there actually was a risk that could be uh, alleviated by the assurances. So the existence of the assurances does not confirm the risk, the circumstances confirm the risk. But could I ask you this, there seems to be a difference in language used by the minister in connection with Mr. Badesha as opposed <coughs> to uh, Ms. Kurit, uh, is it? Sorry. Yeah. If you go to 77 of the volume 1 of the appeal record, the appellant's record, your record, Right at the second last paragraph on the page, starting with however, considering the findings. Do you see that? Oh, page 79. I'm sorry. Did I say 77? Oh, yeah. 79. Okay, yeah. Right at the bottom. However, considering the findings documented. Yes. I have concluded that Mr. Badesha Center should be made conditional on receipt of formal assurances, etc. Now compare that, if you would, please go over to page 92 of the same record. Compare that to the second last paragraph on that page uh, when he's dealing with Ms. Sidhu. And there he ties, he says provided that in that paragraph, but he's, he's tied it to the constitutional issues that are involved, uh, unjust or oppressive or contrary to the principles of fundamental justice. So he seems to be saying there, in her case, that there is a substantial risk, one that if I don't account for it, uh, could breach the constitutional, the requisite constitutional standards. However, if it's, I'm, so I'm making it conditional, and this will alleviate that concern and bring it within an acceptable level. That's different language, maybe I'm making too much of this, than the language used with Mr. Badesha. And I'm just wondering whether the minister in Ms. Sidhu's case was, was overly more concerned in a way because she's a female and the terrible things that have happened to female prisoners um, specifically. So can you help me with that? Um, yes, I can. I, I went through the circumstances of the um, 
of, of the submissions by Mr. Badesha, and I, I got sidetracked and, and moved away before I got to the submissions in relation to Mrs. Sidhu. So I think it might be helpful to do that because I can see why you're saying that. I can see why it sounds that way. But I think what's important is to look at the whole context to determine whether there really is a, a concern, whether there is a basis for the minister to be concerned about risk. But I can see that the language isn't as clear as we might like it to be in that particular paragraph. But let's look at the argument of Mrs. Sidhu, which is found at tab four, at least an um, excerpt of it, at tab four of the condensed book. Um, and there I just want to say that Mrs. Sidhu, like, like Mr. Videsha, had fairly lengthy submissions, 14 pages of submissions uh, in relation to her concerns about India. And in those submissions, she has one paragraph, only one, in 14 pages where she references anything to do with human rights concerns. And that's on page 94, which is the first page excerpted on um, tab four of the condensed book. And there she lists her concerns and cites a series of different um, articles that she claims supports her concern about um, treatment in custody in India. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, very shortly. Um, she goes on for many, many pages after that to talk about um, other things, primarily the sufficiency of the evidence. And then she raises her personal circumstances on page 104 where she mentions that she has cardiac problems and she is concerned about um, her care in, in India. And then this is her conclusion. In conclusion, Mrs. Sidhu urges the minister to decline to surrender her to the requesting state. Her surrender would be unjust or oppressive because she would likely face the death penalty and any assurances provided by India would be meaningless. The case against her is extremely weak and is rendered weaker by the cogent passport evidence. The delay in seeking her extradition has caused her significant prejudice and is oppressive and her personal circumstances are compelling. That's her conclusion. And then she asks the minister to seek assurances if he decides to surrender um, for a variety of things including torture and health care. But her conclusion about why it's a problem for her to go to India doesn't even raise the issue of health, human rights concerns. But that's just an aside. Let's look at what she actually does say in that one paragraph on page 94. So she references, and her references, I've excerpted them at tab 5 of the condensed book. So her references are first that Asian Center for Human Rights report that I mentioned earlier. It's not a well-known source in contrast to the U.S. State Department report. It's not as well-respected. It's not as clear. The information isn't sourced. Not, we can't have the same kind of confidence in it. But even if we had complete confidence in it, she references pages 35 to 39 of that report. And um, so if you go to tab 5A, those, that, uh, sorry, 5B, the portions of that report deal specifically with police custody. So this issue to do with, which is a very significant issue without doubt, this issue to do with rape in custody is rape in police custody. And there is no such reference to rape in the context of judicial custody. There's another section in this report. So the report's divided up into multiple sections. One's torture and police custody. That's a very long section that talks about these terrible issues with rape. Um, one is torture and custody of armed forces. Also doesn't apply. Torture by opposition groups doesn't apply. Torture in judicial custody. So that's the section that would be relevant. It doesn't talk about rape of uh, female prisoners in that context. It's only in the context of police custody. Then there you read the paragraph that I had you look at on paragraph, page 92, where the minister says, particularly female inmates. You're reading that as the minister meeting just when they're in police custody, not when they're in uh, detention. Well, I can only subscribe meaning to what the minister said based on the information that was in front of him. So in other words, the record that went in front of the minister, and the record only provides information about about rape of people in police custody. So uh, I, ca I can't read the minister's mind, but I can look at the record, and that's what the record says. 
And um, there's also a reference to a Human Rights Watch report, and that is at tab 5A of the materials of the condensed book. And that report is talking about mistreatment of a suspected Sikh separatist in, in the Punjab by Indian security forces. Again, not really relevant to Mrs. Sidhu's situation. And then the last um, report that they reference is um, in at 5D of our materials, and that is an article, it's a one-page article at Times of India that talks about custodial torture being a systemic problem in the capital city of New Delhi. So it doesn't reference at all Punjab, it doesn't reference at all particularly women in judicial custody in Punjab. So I would say that's the only argument that my friends have put forward on behalf of Mr. Sidhu. The so evidence just, I just want to be clear. Your position is the minister was not satisfied that the substantial risk um, threshold had been met here in respect of either of these two, as I understand it, but that what he was doing here was out of an abundance of caution, just Absolutely. asking for some assurances. Do I, is that your position? I just want to understand it. Essentially, but I'd put a little bit different spin on it than that. So yes, it's out of an abundance of caution, but it's also in order to put together with all of the other circumstances. So add the assurances into all the other factors that he considered, and I can go through the list of what those were. The minister was satisfied that there would not be uh, a risk to the the appellants would not, or sorry, the respondents would not be at risk. So I could give you the list, and it's quite a long one. The list of factors that he did take into account, and they are. Uh, the independent country reports that we've just talked about, membership in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, constitutional protections available under the Indian <coughs> Constitution, including a provision much like Section 7 of our Charter, the Punjab Jail Manual, information on medical facilities, confirmation of access to medical facilities from the Canadian High Commission, decisions of the trial judge at the co-accused trial in India, access to consular services as Canadian citizens, the treaty relationship, the importance of the treaty relationship, assurances from India, which the Minister notes there's no history of them ever having breached before and in the event that they did it would have significant impact to the relationship with um, uh, Canada and with other countries in the international community and avenues of redress in India including through the courts. So this is quite a large number of factors to be taken into consideration so I would add the assurances into that. So on the one hand, you could say it's out of an abundance of caution, but I think that that undermines the point of them a little bit because they are actually part of the whole uh, constellation of circumstances and the assurances combined with all those other factors and the fact that India has, is a treaty partner is the reason that the minister was satisfied there would be um, Have there no been problem. any cases involving assurances about the prison circumstances in India? In all of the cases that, you're deal that you've... Uh, describe where the minister has sought its assurances. Have any of them dealt with prison conditions? I don't have an example of that, no. They were, okay. They I have a, a legal question before you sit down. What in your submission is the legal import or value of assurances? Are they enforceable as a matter of international law? Or what is the legal status in the, in the Attorney General's position? on the value of assurances? 
I think it would go too far to say they're enforceable under international law. You cannot force a country to, to abide by their assurances, but you can count on a country to abide by their assurances because of the particular context, because you have a treaty, because they have a history of abiding by those assurances, because um, the consequences of not abiding by the assurances go well beyond just the, the, the relationship between the two countries. So is this where you look at the diplomatic relationship and the history between the two countries? Yes, that's right. And the minister looked at that as well, and I haven't gone into that in any detail, but in relation to Mrs. Badesha, uh, pages 73 to 74 of the appeal record, volume one, he talks about the assurances and why you can rely upon them. And Sidhu, it's pages 89 to 91 of the um, same volume of the appeal record, he talks about assurances, and those are the things that he says. And he contacted also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and said, what would be the consequence to a country of not, um, not abiding by their assurances? And, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, well, we would take great umbrage if that happened. We'd take many steps to try to remedy the situation, and the consequences would be great in the international community as a whole. And you can see that just from the arguments we've had today in this court. I'm bringing forward cases from all over the world, mentioning all sorts of different countries, and the reputation of those countries is on the line every time there's a case where, where they um, are unable to abide by assurances, or they refuse to abide by assurances, or they, uh, in fact, um, have uh, country conditions that are abhorrent. So um, I would just point out in my last few minutes that the, not only did the Court of Appeal approach this from the wrong perspective, of looking only at the question of of um, whether the assurances were sufficient and not the whole context, but they also did it on a, on a sort of false factual record. So the paragraphs 22 to 29 of the decision of the Court of Appeal quotes a whole series of different factors that they looked to in the country reports to conclude that the situation in India is abhorrent. First of all, that's the job of the minister to come to that conclusion, and then you look to whether it's reasonable, but instead the court has come to its own conclusion, and mostly on false... Uh, False conclusion. So at paragraph 28, they rely on the Asian Center report that's talking about police custody instead of talking about judicial custody. The same at paragraph 23, that he relies on a statement that's completely unsourced. People died under mysterious circumstances from the Asian report. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump in because I have a question and your time's running out. Um, was the minister acting as a minister of the Crown or was, was he acting as chief law officer of the Crown? And does it make a difference? The minister was acting within his statutory obligations pursuant to the Extradition Act. Can I ask you another question then? It's, it's, it's a question of how we look at what the legal test is. Unjust or oppressive, shock the conscience. He used them both, both phrases interchangeably. In your view, A, is there any difference between them? And I appreciate both are contextual in the circumstances. Uh, how do we assess shock the conscience of the Canadian public to put people in their 60s with serious health conditions into overcrowded prisons? Is there anything that any assurance can do to overcome overcrowded prisons? Well, first of all, I'll answer the first question, which is shock the conscience and unjust or oppressive have been found to be almost the same thing, but not exactly. So, for example, if something shocked the conscience and was contrary to Section 7 of the Charter, it would be unjust or oppressive. So unjust or oppressive, anytime there's a breach of Section 7, it would be unjust or oppressive to surrender. And unjust or oppressive has been found to potentially be a little bit broader than that, so the minister could find that the circumstances were unjust or oppressive when they wouldn't actually meet 
the Section 7 threshold, um, although I can't think of any example where that's ever happened. So usually they're very linked together, the two things. And with respect to the actual circumstances of this case, I'd ask you again to look at the context. So you're asking me to respond to a question that I don't think is actually the circumstances in this case. Yes, the people, the respondents are the age that they are. People of that age have been extradited many times. They face prosecution in Canada. They face prosecution in other countries. But the circumstances to do with the jails according to the law, need to be specific to the particular circumstances. And there is no evidence to suggest that what is described very generally in that report is the circumstance that would be faced by the individuals in Punjab. But that's exactly the question that Justice Rowe, I think, started off this hearing by asking you. Where you have a generalized circumstance, which is overcrowding in prisons, how can you, wh what exactly is the evidentiary burden on the part of the individual to show that he or she will not be put into that overcrowding? I mean, how do you transcend that kind of conclusion? Well, if, if, if there's overcrowding, it's going to affect everyone who's going to the prisons in that region. I mean, there's no basis for assuming that there will be an exception made unless it's requested. Will there be a private cell? I mean, how, how do you not link the generic to the personal in those kinds of circumstances? Because the generic doesn't describe overcrowding universally in every prison. That's why, that's where the problem lies, is that that's why you need the specifics. So that's why the minister went to check out the situation in Punjab. Did he conclude that it wasn't overcrowded? Or did he conclude, he didn't say anything about that, but he did conclude that there was consular access and there could be medical care if needed. So he doesn't specifically say anything about it not being overcrowded, I agree. But I would argue that over, if overcrowding is the reason why we refuse extradition, then we'd probably be refusing extradition to 99% of all countries in the world. So uh, we have overcrowding in some of our prisons in Canada as well. So overcrowding, if that's our only issue here, that's not a sufficient basis to refuse extradition. Thank oh, you. Oh, sorry, did you have Just overcrowding in the context of the State Department report. It wasn't just overcrowding. And the health risks that the State which, Department said flow from that. Which I would point out that the Minister addressed very clearly. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll retire for its morning recess.
La cour. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. Um, on behalf of the respondent, Badesha, I would probably make some reference to the joint condensed book of the respondents, which is a green volume, and the factum of the respondent. Um, uh, suffice it to say that uh, uh, the respondent, uh, Badesha, in this proceeding uh, seeks to have this court order that the appeal be dismissed. Um, before I allow everybody to gather themselves, but before I embark upon uh, my submission, I just wanted to address um, something that Justice Moldova raised in Ms. Henchy's submission, if I may. And if I can, I'd like to refer the court to the joint condensed book and specifically uh, tab 2, page 80. And that was page 80 of the um, initial uh, uh, appellate record. And I have 86. Maybe you meant tab 1. Sorry, pardon me, I did, uh, yes, sorry, tab 1, my, my apologies. Thank you. Um, the third paragraph, or the, I guess the second full paragraph, states, therefore, subject to receipt of the aforesaid assurances from India, I'm of the view that Mr. Badesh's surrender would not be unjust or oppressive, nor would it contravene Section 7 of the Charter. It seems that that language seems to mimic uh, the same in, in uh, Mrs. Sidhu's uh, uh, ministerial, re ministerial response. Um, and I would submit that two points arise from that is that first uh, it seems that surrender is obviously subject to the assurances and second uh, there was some discussion about abundance of caution um, and whether or not the assurances were simply uh, for the purpose or uh, had the purpose of, of being um, sought out of an abundance of caution. I don't see that that language arises in any of the ministerial decisions but I thought I'd just clarify that point. Thank you. Um, if I may, I, I thought that I would just uh, uh, start with, uh, I guess, as an outline, uh, five propositions that I say arise uh, uh, on the part of the respondent, Badesha. First, uh, I su submit that the Court of Appeal did not misapply the law in this particular case. Um, uh, first, uh, the appropriate test was um, whether or not the minister's decision uh, to accept assurances was within a range of reasonable outcomes. The, Mr. Justice Donald, for the majority of the court, um, applied that test um, and simply found that uh, it was not a, uh, within a range of reasonable outcomes. And I'll have a bit more to say on that uh, later. Um, secondly, uh, with regard to uh, the right of review and the test, uh, um, there is a right of review under the Extradition Act. Um, the unjust or oppressive test or the shock the conscience test, but ultimately um, uh, Justice Sabella was asking about this and whether or not there's a distinction, but ultimately it comes down to whether or not there's a violation of a principle of fundamental justice 
and the shock to conscience test and the unjust and oppressive test meet that threshold. Um, and in terms of uh, deference to uh, the minister's function and role and treaty obligations and such, um, uh, Justice Donald alluded to that. He was cognizant of that, uh, but ultimately found that the assurances, and I, shouldn't, I should preface this comment. The, I think what we're really discussing are not so much the assurances, um, because the assurance that, for example, Mr. Badesha and Mrs. Sidhu would be safe within a custodial environment, well, that's a good assurance. The, the issue is, is the efficacy of those assurances and whether or not they can be, are, are effective. And that's really what the focus of Justice Donald was. Uh, he made that focus. And I'll come to a, a little bit about that, but that seems to be um, the real um, issue. But I would also submit with regard to the right of review of the court, um, the minister's uh, exercise of discretion is not unfettered. It is still contained and controlled by charter principles. And that's an important uh, uh, issue that the Court of Appeal, the majority of the Court of Appeal found. The second point that I would raise is this, is that uh, I would submit that the minister found risk here. He acknowledged risk. And his language of um, considering the findings of documented in the Human Rights Report. Um, it, the minister, in my respectful submission, if we read these two uh, responses to the submissions of uh, uh, Badesh and Sidhu, um, acknowledge that there's a problem in India. And it was the use of the assurances and the seeking of assurances to attempt to address that problem. Um, so Does this mean that Canada, in your submission, can never extradite anybody to India? No, I, that's not my submission, no. But if we can't, if, if your argument comes down to assurances, it's very black and white, isn't it? You can either rely on them or you can't. And we have the U.S. report, and that's enough. Well, that's, that's not the submission in my respectful, uh, uh, with respect, my lady, or pardon me, uh, Justice McLaughlin. Um, there's a, a couple of things at play here. Um, first off is that um, it's, Given the current circumstances, if we accept these human rights reports and, and, um, and given, and I submit that the, the minister did accept those reports, if we, we take those and we say, well, there is a problem here. It needs to be addressed in some form or some fashion. And it's mindful about what the Court of Appeal ordered. The Court of Appeal did not deny surrender. They remitted the matter back to the Minister of Justice to say, listen, you have to find out a way to give us some confidence that these assurances can be met. Brings me to my next question. So we, we start from the premises that assurances are not worthless. They may have some value in some circumstances. So what I would ask you is uh, what more is required in your submission to protect, to provide adequate protections in this case rather than simply remitting the matter to the minister and say, you think up something, uh, I would like your answer as to what you think would suffice in this case. Um, well, I think th that's a complicated answer. Um, and first it has to be uh, addressed, I, I guess, uh, within the rubric or substratum of the extradition context. And no one is... 
I'm not standing here submitting that the minister does not have an exercise of discretion. It's a political exercise of discretion. It requires some, um, uh, lots of deference that has to be given to the minister in, in coming to some conclusion. Um, but there's, the, when I look at the problem of Indian prisons and what Mr. Justice Donald identified as the impunity uh, of the uh, of the jailers, in, in effect, that they um, there's nothing to stop them. The first thing that require is required in my respectful submission is some form of oversight. And here here's the dilemma, I guess, in terms of trying to answer that question. Um, the is it an international oversight? Is that something that can be arranged internationally as between nations? Is there this, this has a sort of a tinge of neo-colonialism, right? Are we to oversee the operation of the Indian prison system? Is that what you're calling upon the minister to do for the Republic of India to subject itself to our oversight? Just, Justice Rowe, that's, that's the, uh, you, you anticipate the complexity that I'm, I'm alluding to at this point in time. Is that I'm not sure how that can be managed. Um, and I'm not sitting within the powers, I don't have the powers of the Minister of Justice. And um, we talk about, when we discuss extradition and surrender, the issue of surrender, we're talking about um, uh, political decisions, we're talking about a discourse or dialogue between, between countries. Um, I'm not privy to how that, uh, how that is undertaken. But if it's not an international um, issue, then maybe it's a domestic issue. And then we say to India, say, listen, you have to clean up your prisons. I mean, we can't send people back to face torture, if that's, if that's the concern of the minister. Um, and here's, I guess, is the, is the solution, is when I look, when I look at the, this this case in its entirety, the difference in the last 20 or so years and what's happened is that we have more information now. We, we have more information about what may be going on in Indian prisons. It seems to be uh, being exposed um, in a, a more uh, uh, outward fashion. Uh, to, this is a long way of answering the Chief Justice's question is that it may just take some time. It may take time for some, uh, for uh, Indian prisons to evolve to a standard where Canadians can say, listen, sending somebody back there doesn't violate a person's constitutional rights. It just so basically we might have to suspend extradition to India until they get their prisons or oversight up to the standard that you think is acceptable. That's, okay. that's what I think. And if I can just add to this is that there, things change over a period of time. We may have a treaty partner, and I, I'm thinking right now, um, um, uh, and certainly I don't want to cast dispersions against any other state, but I'm thinking about the Philippines right now and what's happening there. Um, um, things are, are quite a bit different than when we uh, had a, a treaty with the Philippines, when we initiated a, a, a treaty with the Philippines. Things can change that can make uh, surrender unjust or oppressive. Um, moving on, uh, I think I've said this in some fashion, but uh, um, in essence... Uh interrupt for one second, because <clears throat> it seems to me that there is some very important effect in just the minister asking for assurances in the context of an extradition treaty partner. Normally, these assurances, from what I can make out, are not asked for. Certainly when we send people 
to the United States. In some instances, we've said yes. But, but just asking for assurances itself, it seems to me, puts this on a different level, which says, you know, treaty partner, we trust you, we respect you, we got a treaty with you, but in this case, we really want you to assure us on a kind of a diplomatic international, on the stage, international stage. Doesn't that carry with it its own kind of... Um, I don't know quite what, how to put this. It, it, Gravitas, I guess. That's, the, that's exactly the word I'm playing <laughs> for. Thank you. Um, well, one would hope that to be the case, but here, here's what I think that has, has been identified, and this was identified by this court in Shuresh, is that there may be all the good faith in the world, and the Indian, you know, if you go to the Indian Prime Minister, whoever is responsible for that, can say, yes, we're going to protect these people. But at some point, these people have to go to a jail, and then what we have is a difficulty with the local jailer who seems to enjoy impunity, no oversight, and, and bad things can happen. And that's really the, the, the concern that we have, is that it's not just good faith, and that's what I, I would submit uh, Shuresh and other cases like that say, is that listen, you have to look at whether or not they can be effective in, in the context of that. Can I ask you... Go ahead. In the present case, the three uh, co-accused who were found guilty, uh, there is no evidence in the file that they had any problem with the local jailers. Uh, we do not have any evidence that we can pr uh, provide to, about that. Okay. Um, well, I was going to ask you, this argument that um, we need to look at the capacity of the government to make a difference in the prison conditions because they haven't been able to do so given the, the uh, reports that we have before us. Is there a difference between the capacity to fix a whole system and the capacity to uh, provide oversight for a particular person? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the honest answer to that is I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know the breadth of the problem. I'm just... Uh, the material that was placed before the minister seems to suggest and the word endemic is used over and over again. Whether or not someone can be provided a certain... Uh, if, I, I can't remember if it was... Justice. It's an argument that's being made that they clearly haven't been successful in fixing that problem. There's no evidence that it's every single person. Clearly that's not the case. So I, I guess it's just as a matter of, of logic, doesn't it make sense that even if I can't fix a system, I can protect a particular person if I put enough in place? And, and that may be so, and, and that may have been exactly what Justice Donald was attempting to do and say, Minister of Justice, uh, we have a problem here. These don't seem to address the specific concerns. So then that brings me to my next question, which is what more are... What are the additional kinds of assurances that are possible in, a, in a, what's appropriate in an international diplomatic context? What can a government say? Uh, there was a list of suggestions in various uh, facta and places about, you know, um, um, independent medical examinations and so on. Is that really the kind of thing that we could expect would show up in a diplomatic assurance? I, that's, that's my question to you. Um, well, I, I, my short answer to that would be yes. I think that's something that should be attempted. I mean, you know if it's ever been done? I, I'm not aware of that, no. Okay. And I'm not, 
It, my question is less about, it's really more about what can we read into the assurance that's been given in the diplomatic context. Because it says every reasonable effort will be made to meet the safety and medical needs of X and Y. Perhaps that's the equivalent of the long list that some have suggested is appropriate in the diplomatic context. Well, I, I would submit that though the, the assurances here are, are generic. Um, they're not specific. And that seemingly w was what troubled the majority of the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. So uh, I'm just telling you the part of this that really troubles me. Yes. When I look at the assurance, it actually says every reasonable effort will be made to meet the safety and medical needs of Badesha and Situ. Yes. That's pretty specific. Well, um, I'm not sure what reasonable effort amounts to in these particular circumstances. And that, that may be the, the crux of the problem. What is reasonable in the context? And, and is that re in the face of what we will say is endemic problems within Indian prison, what is reasonable? And that's really what I, this case really wrestles with. Okay. Thank you. The word reasonable. Pardon me? The word reasonable had not appeared in the assurances, and it simply said every effort will be made? Uh, well, I, Would I, you be comfortable with that? Probably not. Right. Uh, but so, so that really comes back then to Justice Karakatsanis' question. What, even assuming that the Court of Appeal was right and it should be sent back for further assurances, can you give me some idea of what that would sound like? In terms of an assurance? Of an assurance. An assurance? Um, we're dealing here with the personal circumstances mostly, aren't we? The health and safety in the prisons? I, I, I think what this case is really dealing with is whether or not someone's going to be surrendered for torture and be tortured or, or treated in an inhumane fashion with an Indian prison. That's... Tortured? That's, people get tortured in Indian prisons. That's what the human rights reports are talking about, specifically the Asian human rights report. You told me earlier, I asked you directly, what additional services, uh, assurances you think should be given, and you said you couldn't answer that question. That's for the minister, if I understood you. I, yes, I, I have some ideas, but I don't know that those are, are available to the minister in terms of international comedy as between nations. And as I said, ultimately, maybe this is just a question of time, and that there is, has to be a suspension for the moment until we can... Uh, be reasonably assured in a realistic way that people are not going to be treated inhumanely within a, an Indian prison. And I, as, I, as I said, I'm very reluctant to say that people can never be surrendered to India. Uh, and I, I don't make that submission. But what I'm saying is that when people are surrendered, they have to be surrendered. We have to have um, some uh, assurance, and, I, and it's interesting, we were debating this yesterday, assurance uh, sounds like a guarantee. So there has to be some sort of guarantee um, that people are not going to be mistreated. And if India can do that, and they can demonstrate that... They can't do it even in Canadian courts, sometimes according to the newspapers. So I don't know. It's, uh, this, is, this is the issue, but it's a very difficult one. And in the extradition context, um, Perhaps you, could, you can answer this question. Has a guarantee ever been required? Can you find me cases that say it has to be a guarantee? Well, I, I equate the word uh, assurance and guarantee. That seems to be a synonym for assurance. Um, 
I also would just comment with regard to uh, Canadian prisons. I, I don't dispute that there's problems in Canadian prisons, but people aren't dying in Canadian prisons at the hands of their jailers. That's another argument. Just turning a little bit, uh, this is another point that's been made and perhaps uh, you don't seem to accept it, but we have general uh, um, report, the U.S. report is probably the strongest evidence that there are problems in prisons in India. And then they cite specific states. We know that um, the prisons are under the jurisdiction of the states in the Federation. And your friend invites us to say um, it's, it, it, these general uh, descriptions of what happens in this vast country of more than a billion people are insufficient that we need to, if I understand her, go more particularly uh, to what's happening in the state in question. And then she says, while they were, Punjab was cited negatively in an earlier report, it wasn't cited negatively in the 2013. And she says, the onus is on you to show that something is dangerous in the Punjab, if I can put it that way. How do you respond to that argument? Well, the state report, uh, um, uh, the human rights report at tab 11, it's dated 2012, September 27. No, this is a Human okay. Rights Watch. Mm -hmm. And Human Rights Watch, I, I, as far as I'm aware, is, a, is not a, a fly-by-night organization. They, um, they seem to talk about India, Punjab case shows needs for anti-torture anti law. Where is that? I'm sorry. That's tab... 11 I have the, no tab 11. What page? Just on the front page. Mm -hmm. Human Rights Watch. Okay, into Punjab Police. Okay. Your friend pointed out that that was with respect to someone who was within a separatist movement and therefore might, human nature being what it is, have, have been the object of some animus by the authorities which would presumably not be the case because these are not Sikh separatists. These are people charged with normal criminal offense. And thus, my point, I, uh, forgive me, I, <laughs> my, thus my point, how relevant is it when you say, aha, here is a report as to uh, an abuse within the Punjab, but is not it's factually tied to the uh, conflict, political conflict there, as opposed to a more generic statement about uh, the, the prison system. Well, the answer to that, I think, is found in both the Asian Center for Human Rights reports and the U.S. State Department India Human Rights Report it doesn't seem to be limited to, for example, Sikh re revolutionaries. Um, and it appears that the risk to people in custody is, in, is really indiscriminate. Um, so uh, I listened to my friend's submission on that point, and the question then becomes, in terms of evidence, what evidence is necessary to be provided if the risk is indiscriminately applied. And that's what I derive 
from these human rights reports that there is an endemic fundamental problem within Indian prisons and um, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it, what matters is that if you're in there, that you're at, at a risk. Can I ask you if, uh, in your view, I mean, we're looking at these assurances as discrete assurances. The minister tied them to immediate and unrestricted access by consular officials so that they're not in the air. These are assurances to be monitored on a regular basis by consular officials who are entitled under uh, the Vienna Convention to go in and do what the minister has asked them to do. The monitoring component, uh, it seems to me, is some safeguard as, unless we're going to say you have to fix your entire prison system or we'll never send anybody to India, within the limits available to assure safety concerns and health concerns, is there more that can be done when you've tied it to the unrestricted access by consular officials who can notify as to uh, health issues, uh, fair trial issues, any security issues, any breach which, which will have implications the next time India seeks extradition, won't they? So that too is a kind of a atmospheric uh, sanction for India in not complying with these assurances? Well, I, I think so, but it still comes down to local authority and whether or not that's going to be effective as it relates to local authority. I think there has to be a distinction between the Republic of India at large and its you know, upper level officials and what happens locally. And that, that seems to be the real issue that these human rights reports cite. And the other issue that arises there in terms of monitoring people is, for example, uh, the human rights reports discuss that people can uh, be monitored. Um, people that are actually monitoring people may not actually see or be aware of the signs that someone's been tortured. And, of course, the victim of that um, may be very reluctant to disclose that because they're still at the mercy of their jailers. And that is the conundrum that seems to be um, presented by the problem within, with regard to Indian prisons. Um, I see I have a few minutes left, so I thought I, rather than um, getting into the meat of the, the argument, I thought I would just sort of uh, come to some conclusion subject to any other uh, questions. Um, um, I just may have a quick moment here. Um, I guess the other point that is, it's interesting in terms of the way the appellant structured the argument. And I obviously mean no criticism, but um, when the appellant is talking about uh, general evidence of risk, I, the, first and foremost, the submission on part, the part of Badesha is that the minister accepted there was risk. Um, and second, um, uh, to ascribe to the uh, appellant's... Uh, I interrupt. Sir. The issue is not whether there's some risk. The issue is whether there is a substantial risk or a real risk, but we'll use the word substantial because this court has used it. And the question is, can steps, have steps been taken in the context of the whole picture to reduce that to a level, not to a guarantee, to use your word, that nothing will happen, 
but to a level that satisfies our constitutional obligation? That's the question. Yeah, I, I don't dispute that that's the question. We were talking about guarantees a little while ago, well, and it I, seems to me that that goes, in, and in a way, with respect to the majority of the British Columbia Court of Appeal, it seems to me, to a certain extent, one can argue that they were looking for guarantees. Well, I, I guess I just use it from the plain meaning of those two words, I assure, which seems to me is equivalent to guarantee. But um, I understand, uh, Justice Moldave, I understand your point, and I don't think we're at cross purposes here. I think we're talking about the same thing. And um, it's a, it, it obviously, at the end of the day, is, are the assurances effective uh, to prevent the infringement of, of, of the rights of the, the two persons sought? And the, all those tests have been articulated. Um, finally, I just uh, I would say this, uh, just in conclusion, um, and I've mentioned in, in uh, Badesha's uh, memorandum of argument that uh, um, extradition is a two-way street in terms of, we talk about comedy between nations, but it should be understood that uh, Canada is one of the trading partners, I guess, on, on this front with regard to extradition. Uh, we have uh, now 35 years of chartered jurisprudence. We have Canadian values that have been uh, fairly well defined, I think, over those last 35 years. And we set a certain standard, and it's a, I would submit an internationally recognized standard. So when India has a treaty with us, they have to understand that we have a stake in this as well in terms of what we require as Canadians and Canadian values. And I would submit Canadian values are impressed upon this whole uh, enterprise. So, you know, Justice Rowe was talking about, well, maybe it's uh, uh, insulting to the, the Republic of India, but India has to know that going into this enterprise that we have something uh, at stake as well. Um, my point was not that they might be insulted, but my point in the form of a question, I suppose an argument was that did it not imply what you were suggesting that we exercise a measure of control? And that isn't a question of insult, that's a question of sovereignty. Yes, I, I think I understand that, but I also understand the import of good faith as between nations and comedy between nations. And I submit that um, Canada um, uh, ought not to be embarrassed by seeking a proper, we'll call it assurance, that is effective to ensure that people's rights are not violated. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, before I begin my uh, prepared remarks, um, uh, my position is that the result in this case uh, certainly does not suspend uh, extradition to India. Um, in my submission, it turns on the particular facts and the particular decision and the particular way the minister decided Mrs. Sidhu's extradition, and in my submission, there are uh, inquiries and collaboration that could occur between India and Canada to put 
assurances in place that will meet the concerns that the minister raised in his decision in relation to Mrs. Sadu. And to begin, I would just like to give you four points that encompass my submission, and then I want to take you to the decision concerning uh, Mrs. Sadu, because as Justice Moldaver has pointed out, it, with respect, differs from the decision uh, in Mr. Badesha. And so if I just might... Correct it on that, actually. Pardon me? There is a slight difference in terms... No, I won't say even slight. I mean, it's obviously a potentially a major difference in terms of sexual abuse, but, but I was corrected quite properly by your friend that uh, my point was not a valid point. Well, uh, I'm going to take you to the decision <laughs> and uh, want to shore me up try and <laughs> I'm going to persuade you you were right the first time. But I, I would like to begin with these basic propositions, if I might, is that the position of Mrs. Sadu is that the decision to surrender was not within a reasonable range of outcomes. My second point to you is that the minister concluded that Mrs. Sadu is at risk of torture and mistreatment. And I pause there to say, my submission to you today is about torture and mistreatment. It's not about jail conditions. It's not about fair trials. It's about torture. Having identified that risk, he determined, and Justice Moldaver read this language, and I'm going to take you back to it in a moment, provided he received an assurance ensuring her safety, then her surrender would not be unjust or contrary to Section 7. And in my submission to you today, it is clear on the language of the decision concerning Mrs. Sadu that the minister found the risk was such that an assurance was required in order to mitigate that risk and conclude it was not unjust to surrender Mrs. Sadu. And that is the plain language of that decision. In other go, words... Sorry, you've got to go back to the page before where the minister says make reasonable efforts to ensure. So... I'm going to take you there. Yeah, okay, Justice. but I mean, there's a difference between reasonable efforts and a guarantee, which is what you're now suggesting, I think. I'm not suggesting a guarantee, but I'm suggesting that the minister use the word ensure. In other words, ensuring her safety, given the risk, was virtually a condition precedent to surrender. My third point to you is that in the circumstances, and I agree again with Justice Moldaver, context is everything. In these circumstances, an adequate and meaningful assurance in that regard was the critical feature as to whether Mrs. Sadu would be surrendered or not. It was the determining factor. And the request for the assurance was not simply an assurance sought out of an abundance of caution. And it, and it was not and could not be viewed on his decision as simply one feature of a matrix of facts 
that you assess in terms of the surrender. On the language of the decision of Mrs. Sidhu, it took on critical importance. It was the linchpin to whether or not she was going to be surrendered or not. And finally, in our submission, the minister received no such responsive and meaningful assurance, and the failure of the minister to consider or recognize that factor or recognize the deficiency in the assurance in the circumstances of our case rendered the decision to surrender Mrs. Sidhu unreasonable. And now, I, if I could just briefly take you to that, it's the green condensed book at tab two, which is the uh, first set of reasons, if I could put it that way, of the minister in relation to Mrs. Sidhu. And I will take you, if I might, to page 92. And 92, you will see at the top of the page, begins with a heading, Reports of Custodial Violence and Torture in India, and that is the focus of the submission. And the first few paragraphs there uh, reflect and recite some of the information that is before the minister in relation to torture and the systemic torture in Indian prisons. And the first finding that's of import that Justice Moldaver has referenced is the last full paragraph on that page. Although the reports which you have placed before me raise serious concerns with regard to the safety of inmates in Indian custody, particularly female inmates, it is my view that Mrs. Sidhu's surrender would not be unjust or oppressive or contrary to the principles of fundamental justice, provided that it is made conditional on India making reasonable efforts to ensure her safety while in Indian custody. In other words, given the risks, this provision was put in place to bring some certainty to the safety of Mrs. Sidhu. That's what that word ensure means, is to make certain. And then... Brown with words here, but that's what lawyers do. A guarantee says it has to be certain. So you're saying it has to be a little less, though, if uh, I understand. So I'd just like to know what you're the, saying. The, the uh, request for the assurance indicated that uh, India was to take reasonable, make reasonable efforts to ensure her safety. That was the request of India. So it's not a guarantee? It can't be a guarantee. And what would reasonable efforts be? Well, that is what uh, is to take place between the Canadian government and the Indian government to put uh, in place circumstances that protected Mrs. Sidhu from being tortured while she awaited her trial. And that is an exercise that ought to be undertaken between the minister and the government of India to do that in this case concerning Mrs. Sidhu. Does, yes. does that have to be in the assurance itself? They've said they're going to take reasonable efforts to yes. ensure. What it, kind it, of 
it, it, it has to be, it, it has to, be, the assurance has to respond to the concerns. And I'm going to take you to the assurance momentarily, and my submission to you is that it is absolutely meaningless in the context of the concerns raised by the minister. Okay, so you will, when you're going through that, tell, tell us what kind of assurances it needed to include and whether that's, whether that's ever been done before. I'm going, to, I'm going to indicate to you the framework under which assurances should be produced as between uh, the, the governments in this particular case. Can I just ask for a clarification? Can I just ask for a clarification of something on the page that you referred us to, 92 of the minister's uh, letter to you? Yes. Um, there is a paragraph: reports of custodial violence and torture in India. The third paragraph: in the alternative, you submit that if I order Ms. Sidhu surrender, I must make my order conditional on receipt not only of death, but an assurance from India that Ms. Sidhu will not be subjected to torture, etc. That is he accurate in putting that position, in, in reflecting your position to him? And then my question is, if it is accurate, what, wasn't he responding to what you asked him to do? Well, he was, he, he, he was responding in the sense that he asked India to provide assurances that would ensure her safety. And failing that, he would not be able to find it was just to extradite her. My question follows on Justice Karakatsanis' question. Given that you just asked him for assurances, and he got assurances with a monitoring uh, condition attached to the assurances, what, how, would further assurances look? I asked your, your friend the same question. It's not clear to me what you meant by an assurance when you asked him to get it and why what he got isn't an assurance. Well, because what, we, what was produced to the minister by the Indian government did not respond to what was requested. What was requested was essentially this. Given the fact that there is systemic, endemic, institutionalized torture in your justice system, they characterize it as central to their justice system. We want an, an assurance that is going to protect Mrs. Sidhu from being tortured. And what the Indian government sent back was a simple recital of the duty of a jailer to take reasonable care of the prisoner. And effectively what the assurance said is resting on that duty in this particular section we will make every reasonable effort to ensure her safety. And the meaninglessness of that is that it is apparent from the material, and indeed this is what motivated the minister to ask for the assurance, 
is that this torture has taken place notwithstanding these obligations in place. So to simply say we will follow our obligations rings hollow when the whole purpose behind asking for the assurance was because those obligations have been ignored to the point where torture has become institutionalized in the Indian justice system. If we That's had, the information before if, the minister. If we had a situation, for example, I'm having a little difficulty following it. If we had a situation where we understood that in a particular country uh, there were circumstances, routine circumstances, where solitary confinement was imposed. Are you saying then that we could not accept an assurance from that country that in the case of this individual there would be no solitary confinement? In other words, I'm trying to place your generalized concern on circumstances where we've got a particular well, individual who is seeking assurances for her. Well, it, it would depend on what material was before the minister and what the minister decided. If the material before the minister was, um, there are laws in place in X country that forbid solitary confinement. And there was material in front of the minister that said uh, this country habitually ignores those laws and puts people in solitary confinement. Then there may be you, you would ask for an assurance that, that that not occur. And that would be fine? Well, because it's, it's like the death penalty. You're asking for an assurance that they will abide by the law. The problem with torture is that you are uh, trying to prevent people from acting unlawfully. So you accept their assurance on the death penalty, but not on torture? Well, because it's much easier to assess. Um, torture takes place in secret and it is unlawful and the material before the minister indicated that it is ignored and the government uh, cannot control it and the courts are having difficulty controlling it and so the minister said given that circumstance we want some assurances that Mrs. Sidhu is going to be safe and to simply respond by saying, which is all that they did, well, we have a duty to look after people. In the context of what gave rise to the concern in the first place, that is wholly inadequate. The answer has to be, yes, we are unable to control this. Yes, we agree that state actors in charge of people in custody do not abide by that duty, do not respect that duty to the point where there is systemic torture taking place in prison. We understand that and, and there was no evidence to the contrary put before the minister that that didn't accurately describe 
the state of affairs in India. Well, although you are resiling from your friend's position that the only solution might be to suspend extradition to India, uh, it seems to me your logic is taking you there uh, if you say the whole system is just endemically out of control, then how can we ever send anyone to that system? Because in my submission, you send Mrs. If, if Mrs. Sidhu is to be surrendered and the minister's uh, request is to be adhered to, you engage in a discussion with India to determine circumstances that protects Mrs. Sidhu. Um, it's not a floodgates kind of argument here. I don't know how, I don't think there's ever been a woman extradited to, to Canada, to India. Uh, I don't know how many people have ever been extradited to, from Canada to India over the last 20 years. A few. So it's a question, th this isn't about uh, Canada saying, uh, we're going to cure your prison system and we're going to fix the problem with torture in India. It's simply saying, we have a citizen of our country coming to your country. We, in front of us, see that there is a systemic issue with torture with people in Mrs. Sidhu's position, particularly women and gender-based violence, and we want to put in place circumstances that protect Mrs. Sidhu. You can deal with your issues, but we are dealing with our citizen, and if, and if we're going to surrender her, we want her to be alive and well by the time she faces trial. Uh, just a, a, a question about that. Um, I'm thinking of a case which didn't deal with extradition, but dealt with deportation, re-A in the United Kingdom. And <clears throat> one of the issues their lordships grappled with in that case was I think it was an extradition to Algeria, but if I recall correctly, there was discussion along the lines of, well, we can design a special, we can get all these promises, and you could even have promises that the person will have their own little house with a, with a guard around it and to ensure that none of this happened. But the concern of the House of Lords, as it then was, was once you surrender the person, you can't know that those specific promises you've extracted will be actually maintained. Uh, so the difficulty becomes, and this is a very, I'm sure we're all wrestling with the same problem, does it become impossible in this context of extradition to ever be reasonably sure or sure or whatever adjective you want to use that uh, the, <coughs> the foreign state will uh, not uh, engage in something improper? Well, that is the opportunity for the minister to explore. This is going to the, let's assume our minister got a, a, the promise I'm talking about. Mrs. Sidhu will have a little house. There will be guards around it. No one will be able to come near or harm her. Those guards will put the best guards we have, guards that we know would never 
attack her, would never torture her in any way. And so the minister has that discussion and he gets that condition. My problem is, would it still satisfy what you say the requirement of the charter is? Well, it would, sa it, it would satisfy, it, it may satisfy the minister on this assurance. He's asked for reasonable efforts to be made to keep Mrs. Sidhu safe. And uh, the minister might take those steps as you've described or some other steps as a result of discussions and uh, collaboration with the Indian government and conclude that that's the best we can do. Those are the reasonable steps that were available. There is no guarantees here. You cannot achieve perfection. You cannot as... as uh, I'm trying to understand your, your submission. I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that what's wrong here is that there wasn't enough particularity. There weren't enough detailed discussions to, about the actual uh, syst uh, situation that she would be put in when she got to India. Is, is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that, but I'm, I'm firstly saying that the, the, the underpinning of the minister's requirement for an assurance was the fact that state actors in charge of people in custody did not abide by their duty to take care of them to the extent that the evidence demonstrated in front of the minister, and he was satisfied, that torture had become central to the administration of justice. What India sent back is well, we'll abide by our duties. And against the context of the minister concluding, well, they don't abide by their duties, look at the systemic torture, and it has been that way for years. 12,000 people have died in judicial custody between 2001 and 2010. Uh, over 700 in the Punjab jail. Uh, there is um, evidence in the in Torture in India report that there rapes occur in judicial custody. Um, and so, given the ignoring of the law, for the minister to receive back simply, we will abide by our obligation rings hollow. Surely it rings hollow from the, from the point of view of the minister. That's why he asked for the assurance. Sir, this is more than simply will abide by our international obligations. This is, uh, as I read it anyway, and as I think the courts below read it, at least some extra assurance that reasonable steps will be taken to ensure that she doesn't suffer the terrible things you've just described. No, I, I don't think you read it. I don't, and I'll take you to it. It's at tab four of the condensed book.
page 111. And the, the, it's the second uh, bullet point. And the issue that deals with torture begins halfway down. Begins with the sentence on the left-hand side, it has been. It has been provided under Section 55A of the Criminal Procedure, Criminal Code Procedure 1973, that it shall be the duty of the person having the custody of an accused to take reasonable care of the health and safety of the accused. Close quote. So let I stop there. So this was an obligation that had been extant in India for some years. And against that backdrop, what has occurred? How has this duty protected people? Well, there is systemic torture to the point where it's described as central to their judicial system. So if you pause there, the minister would say, well, that gives little comfort. That has been the underpinning of the duty for some time. Then the assurance goes on. In view of the above, it rests solely on that. I beg your pardon, but I don't read it that way at all. The Indian diplomats with whom I've dealt, which are a number of them over the years, are very correct in how they approach things. All right. <laughs> and how I read it is that the Republic of India is saying, here are our internal laws, and that having regard to those, as opposed to any sense of external pressure, we will make uh, a commitment to use every reasonable effort with respect to these two individuals. And the recitation of what has been set out above is, is, is a recitation of their own internal structure. It's preambular. The operative part is the final sentence, which is an undertaking by the Republic of India that vis-à-vis -vis these two individuals, they will make reasonable efforts to meet the safety and medical needs of both persons, which is exactly what the minister has sought, is it not? I, I with respect, no, uh, because the, the actors uh, that are to take care and to have custody under, under this section have been shown to ignore that duty. And so for India to simply say, well, we will make every effort to ensure those state actors abide by their obligation. I say the minister would say rings hollow because what was before him was evidence for years that those state actors ignore that duty. Well, you seem I to be submitting to us that the minister had formed the view, which you're putting to us is factually accurate and persuasive, that torture is an instrument of the state 
through its actors who are operating outside of the government's control and that the minister being aware of this sought from India assurances of a very specific and particular nature to deal with that, not having received such assurances, that he failed in his duty. I don't read what the minister said to that effect. What I hear you doing is making submissions to us as to certain conclusions of fact which the Court of Appeal in BC accepted and which you ask us to accept as the premise for our decision. Well, I, I simply take you back, and I won't take you back, but I'll, I'll reiterate that the minister looked at the information before him that demonstrated to him that at some level the government of India and the courts of India could not control their state actors in terms of torture. He found that to be so on the uncontradicted evidence before him. It was a conditioned precedent to surrender that he got an assurance that Mrs. Sidhu would be protected from that breach of duty, the systemic breach of duty, and to receive back that we'll, we'll make our best efforts to see that that duty is complied with is not responsive. The Court of Appeal found that and the Court of Appeal has sent it back to the Minister to make inquiries with India to uh, better particularize an assurance that will keep Mrs. Sidhu safe. Can I just ask you a final question? I'm sorry to keep bringing you back to your pleadings, your submissions to the Minister. You sent out the torture concerns uh, and examples of, a, of judicial corruption. You did not, however, say in these circumstances there should be no extradition for Ms. Sidhu. You concluded with, Ms. Sidhu, Mrs. Sidhu alternatively submits that the Minister must make her surrender conditional on the receipt of assurances that's all you've said, yes. from India that she will not be subjected to the death penalty, will not be subjected to any form of torture, which you define as um, under the convention, yes. even though India is not a participant, or other human rights abuses, and Ms. Sidhu's health issues will be properly managed and treated in India. Yes. So this question goes to the range of reasonable outcomes. That's right. When you particularly put to the minister a request that those assurances be sought and in addition to getting those assurances he attaches ongoing immediate and unrestricted consular access tell me what it is that you had in mind that he missed when he said I'm giving you those assurances well what one thing that occurred if I could just point this out and I, I, I'm out of time but if you, um, if, I, if I take you to uh, page 93 at tab 2, this is on the issue of monitoring and counselor. Um, you'll see below the paragraph, uh, 
Well, the second paragraph up from the bottom, I note moreover that both India and Canada are parties to the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. As Mrs. Sidhu is a Canadian citizen, India will be under a legal obligation to allow Canadian consular officials to monitor her treatment while she's in custody. Then he goes on, in order to ensure that Mrs. Sidhu has full recourse to Canadian consular services, I have decided to make her surrender conditional on India providing immediate and unrestricted consular access to her upon request while she is in custody. And that, Justice, is your point that, that you've taken me to. But if you go back to the uh, assurance at page 111 at tab 4, you will see that that assurance is not given. They don't give that assurance. All he opposes it. He opposes it. It's conditional on surrender. But, but, but that's not the assurance. It's not the assurance, but it's his condition of surrender. In addition to whatever, All right. based on those assurances, he's attached a requirement. And he's not going to let her go unless that requirement is met. All right, I, 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 take, I take that point. I, my, my point is simply was not in the assurance. Yeah. And just, if I might say this, just Chief Justice, to answer your question about what can be done, the Saxena case from British Columbia, uh, much was done to ensure uh, his safety when he went back to Thailand, and the Attorney General met with officials in Thailand uh, to uh, set up uh, circumstances uh, at the prison and in that country that would uh, abide by and uh, meet the kind of assurances that uh, the minister uh, requests in that state. And so uh, that's the kind of collaboration and communication that should be taking place to transcend the problem of systemic torture. Thank you very much. Mr. Norris. <clears throat> Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, when it comes to the protection of fundamental rights, such as the right to humane treatment in custody, I'm sure we would all prefer to deal in absolutes and certainties. Regrettably, we do not have that luxury. And in the real world, it's a matter of assessing tolerable risks of adverse outcomes. In my submission, the DORE framework provides a powerful analytical tool for resolving some of the thorny, difficult, and important issues that arise in this case. Because, of course, what the DORE framework requires of the minister and then asks the um, reviewing court to consider is whether the minister has struck a proportionate balance between limitations on a charter right and the achievement of the statutory objectives, in this case, the objectives of the extradition scheme. What's so complicated in this case is that there has not been a charter right breached in the past, and one can then make a finding of fact as to whether that has occurred. Rather, we're dealing with potential outcomes in the future, risks of adverse outcomes. And in my submission, um, it would be a mistake to think that what is a tolerable risk 
can be, termined, can be determined in absolute terms as opposed to in relative terms, namely on this assessment of proportionality. And I'd like to focus on the other side of the scale because, of course, the limitations on rights and the achievement of statutory objectives are necessarily sliding scales which will either be proportionate to one another or not. And little has been said in this case about other potential outcomes. And one outcome in particular that calls for careful consideration in my submission is whether a Canadian prosecution is a realistic option. Canada does have jurisdiction to prosecute the respondents. Moreover, it appears that a case could be put together in Canada where they would be prosecuted here. We generally discourage interveners from pronouncing on the particular case. Yes. I, I take your general point, though, that you say alternatives could have been considered. And, and the general point, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make necessarily in relation to the particular, is that it is not appropriate to simply pay lip service to the option of a Canadian prosecution. Because what must be considered in the context of the case is to what extent surrender actually promotes the goals of extradition. And if Canada does have the possibility of prosecuting an individual as opposed to surrendering that individual, then Canada does not become uh, a place of safe haven for fugitives. Um, Canada does not grant impunity to fugitives. The only thing that would be lost in my submission is the prosecution of the individual in the foreign state. Well, that's a huge loss. That's what, well, we have. That's what an extradition treaty with respect is all about, and if you take that position, it seems to me, we will never extradite anybody because there will, there will be all kinds of countries that don't have the proper conditions in prisons like us and there will be records of violence and so on. So we'll say, you know what, we've got it all right here. We'll just keep them here. As Well, number one, it would require that Canada has jurisdiction to prosecute, and in many cases that will not obtain. But in my submission, it, it would be a mistake to simply uh, um, advance that general proposition because we're not dealing with the constitutionality of extradition per se. How does this work? If we don't have the evidence here, if we can't put a case together, then Canada becomes a safe haven. Well, but that, that's what I was trying to show, that the assessment of a tolerable risk depends on answering that question. If Canada cannot put a case together, then we may be prepared to tolerate a greater risk of adverse outcomes in the foreign state. But if Canada can, then that affects what is a range of reasonable options. And so in, in my submission, yes, it, in, in, men, in, in some cases, depriving the foreign state of the opportunity to see justice done in its, in, in its courts can be a significant cost, but it is not necessarily a significant cost in every case where there are other realistic options available that are more rights protecting. Thank you. Mr. Agarwal. Good morning, Chief Justice. Justices, for the most part, the South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario relies upon its factum. I rise to emphasize 
two points. First, there is only one case that's been cited to you in all of the materials that is an example of personalized evidence of harm. That's the Druzen v. Russia case, which was a human rights complaint against the government of Russia and the European Court of Human Rights. In that case, the defendant was kidnapped and tortured by Tajikistani authorities after extradition proceedings were commenced in Russia. The implication of the reliance on that case is that the only kind of personalized evidence that will justify denying an extradition request is where the defendant has already been the subject of an illegal act. I submit to you that that raises the standard much too high. It means that defendants can never rely on evidence of potential mistreatment or torture except where they have already been mistreated or tortured. The other type of evidence that's been cited here is that of generic human rights reports. And these have been criticized as being so generic as not to be personalized and having no nexus to the, appellant, or sorry, the defendant's circumstances. I submit to you that we have to remember the context in which these reports were commissioned. They're commissioned by international NGOs who are monitoring challenging human rights situations in countries where the political and social climate is hostile to their motivations. These reports are not being written by the authors to be filed in future proceedings in extradition cases in foreign countries. And so we can't read anything into the research choices that the authors may or may not have made, what they may or may not have studied. If we require these reports to be so particularized, that is that not only they have to refer to the specific type of custody, but also the specific jail in a specific region dealing with a specific category of defendant, then we undermine the value of these reports more generally to international human rights law, but we also set the bar so high that a defendant could practically only meet the test where he or she went out and commissioned the evidence. Using this case as a broad general example, the question has been asked, is there any evidence that the co-accused here were subject to mistreatment or torture? And the evidence, or the response, I should say, appears to be that, in effect, the defendants could have marshaled that evidence by asking the co-accused. But I remind this court of what the federal court said in the Singh case. Torture is practiced behind closed doors. It is denied by the states where it occurs. Officials that engage in those practices are skilled at preventing visible manifestations and adept at ensuring, through threats, that no complaint will ever be made. For that reason alone, the South Asian Legal Clinic submits that this court should make clear in this case that generalized evidence is sufficient to meet the test. Subject to your questions, those are my submissions. Ms. Weaver? Mr. Ms. Weaver, yes. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Canadian Lawyers for International Human Rights, the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture, and the Canadian Council for Refugees submit that reliance on diplomatic assurances not only fails to discharge, but significantly undermines Canada's obligations at international law not to remove anyone to a risk of torture or cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, and also to take affirmative steps to prevent such practices from occurring. The first of these obligations engages practical questions 
about whether diplomatic assurances can remedy an established risk and secure meaningful protection for the person sought for extradition. And there has been considerable discussion already about the efficacy of assurances, having regard to the context in which they are given and the capacity of the receiving state to implement them. Certainly it is our submission that diplomatic assurances against torture or ill treatment are inherently ineffective and unreliable and therefore insufficient to meet Canada's obligation not to expose someone to risk. And we say that based on the fact that states from which such assurances are sought will already have proven either unable or unwilling to comply with peremptory norms of international law as well as on the profound challenges in monitoring and enforcing compliance, many of which have already been adverted to and are described in greater detail in our written submissions. Beyond that, however, we also say that there is a principled question engaged by Canada's obligation to take positive steps to prevent torture or ill treatment. The erga omnes nature of the right not to be subjected to torture or ill treatment creates a corresponding duty on all states, including Canada, to ensure that those practices don't occur anywhere. So even if diplomatic assurances might in rare instances be capable of protecting the rights of a person sought for extradition, they are nevertheless inconsistent with that broader duty. Resorting to diplomatic assurances is an abdication or at best a delegation of a state's responsibility to prevent torture or ill treatment. Moreover, at their absolute highest, diplomatic assurances achieve ad hoc, individualized protection against human rights abuses for some, while ignoring the systemic failure or refusal to ensure the same protection for others. In effect, reliance on diplomatic assurances creates two classes of detainees those select few who benefit from special bilateral arrangements to prevent torture and ill treatment, and the many others who continue to be subject to such abuses. There is a real danger that in relying on diplomatic assurances, the sending state will be seen as tolerating the practice of torture or ill treatment by the receiving state more generally, so long as the individual sought for extradition is exempt. This profoundly undermines international human rights norms, as well as the international community's efforts to promote and ensure compliance with those norms. So even in those rare cases where diplomatic assurances might arguably be effective in achieving protection for the individual sought, they are inconsistent with and undermine Canada's broader obligations to the international community. For all of these reasons, we submit that diplomatic assurances against torture or ill treatment should be categorically rejected. Thank you. Reply. Thank you. Um, just a few uh, quick points. There was a question about whether or not assurances like the ones in this case have been used before. There's two examples where identical assurances were used in the record. Uh, tab 52 and 58 refers to the Saxena case, that's in the General Book of Authorities, the Attorney General's Book of Authorities, and Tab 67, the Hurley case. 
both of those cases had virtually identical assurances. And I wanted to make a reference to Saxena at tab 58, just in response to uh, my friend's comment that Canada has uh, a reputation to uphold as a strong um, protector of human rights. And I, I think that's true. And that was referenced in Saxena um, at paragraph 23, again, tab 58, where the minister had said he thinks that these assurances in part would be um, likely to be followed because of uh, Mr. Saxena's circumstances. And one of those was his high, prof high pro pro profile of his case. That doesn't apply. But the two others were very significantly applicable to this circumstance. One, the fact that he's being sent back by a nation that puts so much stress on human rights. So that, that is a factor that I think can be taken into account in assessing the assurances and, of course, the domestic implications in that case to Thailand of any failure to honor the obligations. So that was, that was um, considered to be a significant factor in the, um, the surrender in that situation. The other thing I wanted to mention is, once again, there is no assurance against torture. There was no finding by the minister that there would be torture. The record does not support a finding of torture. All references to torture are in police and security um, services. So although my friend has made a big point about the fact that the assurance is against torture, it is not against torture. It's against, as we discussed earlier, uh, it, it's in relation to health and safety considerations. And then um, there was a reference to the importance of whether or not prosecution could take place in Canada, and that it's important that that ta be taken into consideration. I should say, first of all, that the minister's discretion is broad, but it does not include the ability to exercise prosecutorial discretion. That's done by uh, prosecution services. However, he does consult in the case of any Canadian citizen on the possibility of prosecution in Canada, and he did in this case. And I'll refer you at volume one of the appeal record, uh, page 84, in relation to Mr. Badesha and page 104 in relation to Mrs. Sidhu, and he consulted with the Attorney General of British Columbia, and the wording is identical for both um, decisions. He says, I'm advised that after examining the said factors, counsel for the Attorney General of British Columbia, the competent authority to conduct a prosecution in this matter, concluded that Ms. Sidhu's domestic prosecution is not a realistic option. So he actually did take it into consideration, but of course he can't make a determination about whether to prosecute because that's not within his role. Is there anything in the record about why it took 10 years? Why, why it took 10 years for the extradition? Yes. I don't think so. Although the minister does address delay um, in his decision with Mrs. Sidhu, and there is uh, general comments about the difficulty in gathering together evidence and preparing an extradition case, but nothing that really drills down to exactly what the 10 years was about. Uh, Hi. That's it. Yes. Thank you. And we will take this case on reserve. Court stands adjourned. Mm -hmm.